give a little preamble to everything else. Uh, Eddie, thank you for uh, reading that passage from Numbers. That's not our actual text for today, but it is the text that our text from today is based off of. There's a, an Old Testament reference. And if you don't have that in your mind, then what we read in John, you know, that famous verse, John 3.16, it makes no sense because this is what Christ is, is referring to. So I really appreciate you reading that for us, brother. Well, I want to take you back to the year 1980. Think about where you were at, what you were doing on, uh, I don't know, maybe up May 18th of that year. I was probably in a, in a cradle or a crib. Um, just a few months old myself. It was a big event that was happening uh, in the United States at that time. I'm going to tell you a little about it. See, Mount St. Helens erupted in 1980. And there was a man who lived basically right there in the shadow of the mountain. His name was Harry R. Truman. Not the president, Harry S. Truman, but Harry R. Truman. And he refused to evacuate his lodge that he'd owned with his wife for some 40 years. She'd passed on a few years before. It was located at Spirit Lake Mountain. Truman was warned many times about the eruption of the mountain. He was warned by the U.S. Geologic Service, by the National Park Service, by friends, by family, by the state and federal agencies. After the area around him had been closed off and he'd still refused to go. Even then, news agencies would fly in with a helicopter. They wanted to interview this man who refused to go. And he told the same story over and over again about how you know, he lived there all his life and, and you know, he was tied to the land. And each time, as they would finally fly off in fear of their lives, because the mountain could erupt at any time, they would offer him a ride out. But he wouldn't take it. Truman's niece later said that he thought the volcano would just go straight up and that somebody would be able to come in and get him. But on May 18, 1980, there was no longer a chance for Harry to evacuate. The impending eruption became reality, and Harry and his many cats lie hundreds of feet beneath the mud, ash, and rocks to this day. See, Harry made a choice. He knew what was coming. The, the mountain was going to erupt. He did not know the day, but it was going to erupt. He was warned over and over and over again. And he made a choice. And that's really what today's text and today's sermon is about. So, Let's go to John chapter 3. We're going to pick up with a little overlap of where we were last week. We're going to pick up in verse 14. The word of God says, And as Moses, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and the people love the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. 
But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Let's go to the Lord. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you that you loved us so much that even though sin was in us, even though death reigned in our bodies, even though the judgment is already upon us for our sin, at the right time you sent your Son to die for us. That all who would look to him and believe, all who would call upon his name, all who would come to the light laying their evil works behind would have eternal life. Father, put your words in my mouth this morning. Give me a word to speak that would encourage those who are downtrodden. That would speak life to those who are feeling death. That would stir within the hearts of those who are lost. And that would empower your saints to live a gospel-centered life. Lord, sanctify us by your truth. Your word is truth. Amen. Title of our sermon is, What Does God Have to Say About the Judgment? What does God have to say about the judgment? He's got a lot, and that is really what this passage is about. People want to blame God for judging their sin. This passage teaches that judgment for sin, like the sin itself, is already in the world. Contrary to what they tell themselves, Christ came to offer salvation, though most people will not receive it. Told you about Harry Truman. You know, if that story were to happen today, his family would probably sue. And they'd probably sue about everyone because, you know, they wouldn't want him to even have a choice. It would be the government's fault that he even made that choice. And that's how people look at God. Well, why did you give me a choice? Why did you even let me refuse? If you're sovereign, you know all things. Why would you let me refuse? And so they take that and they go the opposite way with it. Well... God wouldn't. God is love. So he wouldn't do that. So this must not be true, this whole judgment thing. It can't possibly be my fault. God wouldn't do that. He's, he's so loving. Well, no, he, he will do that. The judgment is already there. You want to talk about his love? You've got to talk about Jesus Christ. He sent his son to die. He didn't send a helicopter to land. He didn't send your neighbor knocking at your door. He may well do those things, but he sent his son And because we love the darkness, we reject the light of of Christ and of his gospel. What does God have to say about the judgment? Well, three things. We're going to start with the first one. The first is this. God doesn't want to punish you. That's not who he is. You know, people look at at the Old Testament and they think that there's the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament. The Old Testament, that guy is coming with thunder and he's going to, you know, kill people and, and pay back his enemies and... Ah, you got to be afraid of him. But then there's the God of the New Testament. And that God's love and he's cuddly and he's nice and he sent his son. It's the same God. If you're going to talk about his punishment in the Old Testament, we have to talk about his long suffering. We have to talk about his patience. We have to talk about how he gave opportunity after opportunity after opportunity. But people did not respond to it. And it's the same today. People don't respond to it. But he doesn't want us to perish. God shows us. What he would do ahead of time. We read that passage from Numbers 21 verses 4 through 9. He gave us a sign. 
in the Old Testament of what he would do in the New Testament. Sin was already in the world. The judgment was already in the world. These people had grumbled against God. God sent the serpents as a sign and they would bite them. And the death, that venom was already in them. And so they were dying and they call out, Moses, talk to God that that this would stop, that we'd quit dying. And Moses calls out to God. And what does God do? He says, fasten a bronze serpent on a pole, lift it up. Could you imagine if you walked into your doctor's office and you've got arthritis, you've got a, a slip disc. And he says, you know what? Here, hold on. Let me, I'm going to do some woodwork and I'm going to put it on the wall. Okay, look at that and you'll be healed. You're out of your mind. You're out of your mind. And you'd probably just walk right out, right? You wouldn't sit around to even wait on him to do his woodwork and to put it up. You would just find you another doctor, right? Don't you think they're the same? Don't you think that would be you at that time also? You're telling me, Moses, that God just said that if I will look at this fire serpent or this bronze serpent, lift it up on a pole, I'll be healed? That's nonsense. And so certainly there are those who refused to look. And what happened to them? They died. But all who looked on it were saved. Well, what's the difference between those who looked and those who didn't? Faith. They believed not because of Moses. They believed not because they'd ever seen anything like it. Not because it made any kind of sense. They believed because it came from God. It was the word of God. God said it. I believe it. I will do it. I may struggle believing it. I may continue to sin. But it is the word of God and I will trust in it. He sent this sign thousands of years before foreshadowing what he would do with his son, Jesus Christ. You're telling me that, that my sin will be put on Jesus Christ. He died and all my sin was on him on the cross. And that if I will just look to him and believe and have faith that I'll have eternal life. That's what I'm saying. That's what his word says. Not because it had ever been done before. Not because it made any sense to the human mind. The Bible says that it doesn't, that it is foolishness. To the Greeks, a stumbling block to the Jews, this gospel, but because it came from the mouth of God. And to, to prove it to us, to show us that it was like this, he gave us this. Jesus Christ refers to this. As this serpent in the wilderness was lifted up, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. Isn't that amazing? He did that because he doesn't want to punish us. His Son, Jesus Christ, became sin. He who knew no sin became sin. Why? That we might become the righteousness of God. This salvation is for everyone. Whosoever would look at him. God so loved who? The world. That all, all, all who look on him in faith would be saved and not perish. That's a genuine offer. Do you understand that? That every single person can be saved if they would look to him in faith. The Jews thought that that salvation was only for the Jews. They really, truly believed that. The church, the early church operated like that. They didn't look to go out and spread the gospel to the rest of the world. They went only, you know, they were told to go to, uh, go to Jerusalem, go to Judea, go to Samaria, go to the, and to the rest of the world. But they didn't do that. They went to Jerusalem and they stayed there until God sent many things to the church to cause them to scatter and the gospel to go. They really did believe that it was just for them. And we can live that same way as though salvation is just for us and ours. But it's for the whole world. Jews weren't excited about the 
the con- they were, excuse me, very excited about the condemnation of the nations. Are we like that? Do you get excited thinking about how people who have sinned against you, who have rejected God, will be damned in hell? Haven't you ever seen that? Man, I, I remember hearing a, a guy witness one time. And he just got so angry at the guy he was witnessing to because this, this guy would not respond in faith. And he just like a child turned and said, well, how does it feel knowing that you're going to burn in hell? We might not say that, but man, do we live like that sometimes? Get him, God. Oh, but for the grace of God goes us. This salvation is not dependent on our heritage. Where we come from, what family, it's not on our, on our law-keeping, how good we've been. It's not about how close we already were. Well, I was raised around the Bible. I was a Bible scholar. No, it is for everyone. And this salvation comes from love. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That's it. He didn't owe the world anything. There was no obligation on his part. None. God gave his only son. That means he he demonstrated his love for the world in this. You you know the expression, for God loved, so loved the world. So loved. God loved the world in this way. How did he love it? That he gave his son. There's no greater expression of love that anyone has ever done or shown than God would give up his son. If you don't know him, if, if you've heard about him but you have no life with him, if these words, you know, they just, yeah, I'm not really sure about what, he, what he's saying. Let me tell you, God is sure. He's sure about you. He's not neutral towards you. He's not ambivalent towards you. It's not, I could take him or leave him. No, he loves you. And he gave his son for you. And if you were the only person on the world, he would have sent his son for you. Even if you rejected him. I mean, that's the kind of love I'm talking about. That even if we rejected him, he would die to give us the chance to even reject him. You know, God loves the world, brothers and sisters. So why is it that so many Christians seem to hate the world? The Bible says that we are to be in the world, but not of the world. But that, And we're not to be friends with the world. We're not to try to just be like the world. But we are just as Christ did. We are to love the world. We make it clear to the world so often what we're against and what we hate instead of what we're for and who we love and who loves them. It puts a sour taste in people's mouth and it turns them off to the gospel. They need to hear about this God. Not that he's just love, but that he is love. Not that he's just love and he'll overlook their sin, but he is so much love that he died for them in spite of their sin. Salvation comes from God's love and not his obligation. No one will be saved in heaven because, you know, I, I, I did these things for God. No one gets saved on earth because, you know, I came to church enough. I gave enough to, to, to the church. I gave enough to the poor. And so God owes me. God's sitting there. Well, you know, he's been really good. Um, yeah, I, if he, when he does about two more things, I think I'm going to go ahead and save him. It doesn't work like that. God owes us nothing. It's purely out of his love. You're never going to put God in debt. Never. So just don't think like that. 
erase that thought from your mind. It will mess you up. It will put you into a works-based theology. Even when you're saved, you'll constantly be going around going, I don't know, where do I stand with God today? It gives you anxiety. Just rest on Christ. Believers, we want people to come to Christ, but are we willing to love them enough to be a part of their lives ahead of time? Wouldn't it be great if if a Muslim got saved and came into the church? Wouldn't we want to hear that testimony? Good. Then when you see one, talk to him. Say hello. Invite him to coffee. Invite him into your house. Love them. Wouldn't Jesus? Wouldn't Wouldn't he say, come to me? Let's have a meal together. Let me tell you about myself. Let me tell you about salvation. If, if you would revel in that testimony, then revel in a life of sacrifice. Even loving people that you struggle with because of our mindset and our culture and what we think about them. Church, we need a missional mindset. We need that kind of a heart. We need to know the gospel. We need to share the gospel. We need to live out the gospel. Showing love and grace for all people. There is no gospel without God loving the world in this way. And there is no gospel penetrating heart unless you love someone enough to take the time to get to know them, to share that gospel with them. It's not going to be, you know, I was driving yesterday and I saw people out holding up signs. And that's, it's good, but is it effectual? Is it effectual to just hold up a sign and say, Jesus loves you? I could hold up a sign, two plus two is four. That, it's good, but, but is it the best? Is that the best use of somebody's time? Wouldn't it be better to actually walk up to someone? I mean, it was in front of a gas station. Wouldn't it be better to just actually walk up to someone and, and to start talking to them? And, and, and maybe invite, like, there was a Wendy's right there. Hey, hey, let's, let's go have a Coke and let me tell you about a little more about this. You might get rejected 500 times, but you might get a, a hook on 501st. You're not going to have any encounters just holding up a sign. So we can't just live our lives casually. Yeah, we need to engage. We need to love. All right. And finally, this salvation is only through faith. The word said that as many as would believe, believe in him when he's lifted up, look to him, as many as would believe in his name would be saved and they would not be judged. We need to believe that what he has said is true and look to the cross where Christ was made sin and to see our sin judged there. It is foolishness. I grant you that. It makes no sense. But we are not saved by human reasoning. We are saved by the word of God and what he did in his son, Jesus Christ. And this is the gospel, folks, that God is holy. He is loving. He is without sin and he will not be around sin. That's a problem because all we are is sinners. But he loved the world in this way that he sent his son to die for us, to take our sins upon him. You know, that serpent in the wilderness, God, it's, it's very deliberate that he held up a serpent. They didn't get bit by a serpent. And then God said, well, you know, mold a, a statue of a hawk and put that up because hawks eat serpents. No, he put up a serpent, the very image of the thing that was killing them. And Jesus Christ, who knew no sin, became sin on the cross because it is sin that is killing us. He put that sin on him and he put sin to death and he conquered death once for all. That all who believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life. But you must believe. 
you must believe that message. Second thing God has to say about the judgment is this, that he sent Jesus Christ so that we wouldn't have to be judged. You know, Christ came to save and not to judge. That's, that's what the word says here, right? Um, verse 17, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. Christ came to save and not to judge. There's your God is love. That is the heart of God. He does not delight in our suffering. He does not delight in sinners going to hell. He delights in people being saved. He delights in the glorification of his son who became sin on the cross that we might become the righteous of God. He delights in the bride of Christ that we are becoming that was bought by the blood of Christ. That's his heart. The Jews that, that were reading this at this time, they anticipated a Jewish Messiah who would set the world aright, who would reward them and punish all wrongdoers. And don't you know that a wrongdoer is everyone who wasn't a Jew? And the church live like this sometimes? We can't wait to get to heaven. We can't wait for the judgment day because Jesus is going to say to me, well done, good and faithful servant. And he's going to look at all those. Come on, fill in the blank. Muslims, the, the child abusers, the abortion doctors, the fill in. Who, who are they? Who's the worst of the worst in your, in your mind, in your heart? And he's going to say to them, you're going to hell. Well, the Bible also says this, that that day will be a day of weeping and gnashing of teeth. Do you think that's just because they're going to be sorry? No, I'm telling you, it will be a horrendous day. Our hearts will be so troubled. His heart will be so troubled because of the penalty of sin. Because people will know that they rejected Christ. They just had to believe. That judgment was already in the Jews in the wilderness. They already had that venom and then they had to look up. In faith. And that judgment is already in the world. Whoever believes in him is not judged, but whoever does not believe is already judged because he did not believe in the name of the only Son of God. Jesus points to the wilderness to show that all will die in judgment apart from looking in faith. All. There's no exception. The ones looking to the snake already had death in them. Everyone looking to the cross already has death in them. There's no difference between the saint and the damned except for the cross. That's it. We are both like people in the wilderness who got bit by the snake, but one had faith and the other didn't. The doctrine of original sin, man, we are born this way. It's the doctrine of original sin that because of Adam, we inherit this. The Bible says that I was born, I was conceived in iniquity. You see it in children. They are selfish. They are so, so selfish. They see it. They want it. Don't take it from them. They will have a fit. They will get angry. They will rage. 
If they're strong enough, they will reach out. They will lash out with no thought as to the consequences or of love. You don't have to teach a child to steal. You, you put a, a kid big enough to move and to do something next to another kid, and that kid's got something they want. They're going to take it. And with no intent, I'm not borrowing it. No, it's mine now. I'm taking this. They're sinners from the start. You know, at whatever age, we're not there yet with ours, but when they start lying, do you think I'm going to train my children to lie? Where are they going to learn this? They're born with it. We are born with sin in us, and we are born with that judgment in us. We must look to Christ in faith. Those who believe in him are not judged, though. Why? Because their sin already was judged. There is no double jeopardy with God. Christ paid for that sin. Christ received the judgment and the penalty for your sin. And so we do not receive it. Christian, there is great comfort in this. Who is there who hasn't at one time or another strayed? Who hasn't gone like a sheep? Who hasn't wandered from the Lord? And we find ourselves in sin. We're like the prodigal son. We find ourselves so far from home. We've been living with the pigs and we're eating slop. And we're hungry even for that. But we can come back to him. We can come back to him knowing that he paid it all. That there is no judgment at all whatsoever for those who are found in him. We can rest in that. It's a great comfort in our daily walk. It's a great comfort when we... the. The devil just brings up the list of sins when you have a thought that you didn't want to have, but it was there, and you start going, well, this is me, this is who I am. If I were really saved, then I wouldn't have these thoughts. No, that's not true. Who you really are is a child of the king, and those thoughts are not you. Take those thoughts captive, conquer them through Christ, but they're not your identity. They don't cause you to not be saved. Those things are the devil and they cause you anxiety and fear and they cripple you. They make a, you a Christian who, you know, in Christ has hit a grand slam, but instead you're still sitting at first at home plate and you haven't even rounded first yet because you believe the devil that, oh, you struck out. No, you didn't strike out because you struck out, but Christ hit it out of the park. Friends, your sins will be punished. That is definitely true question is by whom will it be you or will it be christ the world needs to hear that their sin has already brought judgment but that god in his love has brought his son third thing that god wants to say to us this morning about the judgment is this that there are reasons that some will choose the judgment there's a choice do we want to hide our sin and pretend that we don't have any? Or do we want to try to deal with it ourselves instead of taking it to Jesus? Are we blind to it? Or will we come to the light? It's here in, in the scripture. Verse 18. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the Son of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment that the light has come into the world and the people love the darkness rather than the light. Why? Because their works are evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his work should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. 
do we want to hide our sin or will we be exposed? You know, it, the Bible makes it sound like cockroaches. You know, you, you go into a room, a cabinet or whatever, and, and everything's good and quiet and you turn on a light and then they don't run to the light. They run away from the light. You know, they used to have that, that expression, uh, what is it, sweating like a, in church? You know what I mean? Well, it's the idea that the gospel does make people really, really uncomfortable. It is a stumbling block. The Bible is an offense to people. It bothers them. If we give them the true gospel. No one's going to be offended by God as love. Nobody's going to be offended by Jesus as your buddy, but those things will not save. They have to have the true gospel, and the true gospel is a rock of offense. I, I, I talked about this one last week, this scripture from Second uh, Corinthians. The Bible says that we who are being saved are a sweet savor. We have a smell about us, and other people who are being saved are drawn to us because of that gospel and that gospel work. But people who are perishing... We are like a stench that they want to run away from. You only smell if you're living out the gospel, though. You only smell if you profess that word and live out that work of God in your life. People who will not be saved will not be saved because they run from the light. But people who will be saved will run to the light. So the answer is not, well, just make the light dim. No, the answer is shine the light because you want the, the people who will be saved to be saved. The ones who won't be saved, that's not your control. They have a choice. Stand for the gospel. Don't water it down. Don't make it weak. Don't soft sell it. Shine. Shine like a city on a hill. That's his call to the church. Shine, Christians, like a light that's on a lamp and don't cover it in your personal life. Friends, there's no sin too great for Christ. There's no sin too great for Christ. Our inclination, our heart is to run from the light, but we don't have to. We don't have to. When we're lost, we can come to him and confess those things, and we certainly don't have to once we're saved. There's nothing too great from him. You know, later on, it it talks about the scripture, and they come to him uh, bringing what? Their works? To the light? No. Bringing the works they've done in Christ to the light. Okay, you sin. Great. Leave that behind. Yeah, I don't want to bring those things either and show those off. But I sure want to show off what Christ has done. So I do want to confess, oh, hey, I used to look at these things on the internet that I should not look at. But not now. Not because of Christ. Because of the work that he's done. I used to struggle with these impure thoughts. But, but because of Christ, I have conquered them. I don't want to revel in them. But I want to revel in what Christ has done. And if I'm going to boast, I want to boast in the Lord. I certainly don't want to talk about what a a good guy or a good gal I am and all the things that I've done and how I've, I've, you know, I I give to charity and I go to, you know, I, I cook for all the funerals and I do all these things. Those things are good. But if you boast in them, you've already been paid in full. You want to boast in the Lord and in what the Lord has done. So bring the work of Christ to the light. Bring it to God as a sacrifice. Bring it to light in the world for how he transforms and changes us. Those who are, who are perishing will hide in the dark. 
because they want to hide their evil deeds. Non-believers don't want to expose the evil that they've done, and they have nothing else to offer. Our righteousness is but filthy rags. No one is able to come to the light with anything that they have done. Anything that they have done, including believers. But we come to the light to expose the good deeds done in God. Christians, we only have what Christ has done. That's it. We only have what Christ has done. Whatever we boast about is like bragging about a test that we cheated on. You know, if you got 100% on, on the test of life, it's only because of Christ. Don't take credit for what he's done. I mean, that, that's not right, right? I mean, we know that. Just a sense of fairness and judgment. If, if you had a group project in school and you never showed up to any of the meetings, but your group got an A, and so you got an A because you're part of the group, you wouldn't go around boasting, oh, my group's so great, we did all that. No, you're, the people would call you out. That's ridiculous, and we should be the same way. If, if we hear each other bragging about how great we are and what we've done, we should be the same. You didn't do any of that. God did all of that. That's God's work. He's good. You are a cockroach. Saved by grace. You're a cockroach saved by grace, by the blood of the Lamb. We need to speak gospel truth. Give opportunity for the light to penetrate the darkness of men's hearts. They must hear this word in order to be saved. They must. They have no excuse. If they don't hear it, they have no excuse. If they reject it, God's made himself known throughout all of his creation. But no one will be saved apart from the word. Shine. Shine like a light. You know, I chose uh, this example of the man, Harry Truman. I think it's a good one. I think it's a good one. The judgment is like that eruption. It's coming. It's already there. Can't you see the signs? All you have to do is believe what we're saying. Get up. Come to the light. Get up, Harry. Come off the mountain. Don't stay on the mountain where you're going to die. Don't stay in your sin where you are going to perish. But come. Believe. Look at this man, Jesus Christ, who was lifted up, who became sin. That you could be made the righteousness of God. Amen.